There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The thing that was also driving me crazy was that one of my jobs at InStyle was to edit like um, affordable fashion pages. And we would use street style images um, as inspiration, like as the jumping off point to say, here's the trend and here's how to get it. And every single month, I would make sure to only submit images of black women. And every single month they were rejected. Every single month they told me, I need to find new images. I need to find new images. I need to find new images. But they would never say that. But I'm like, this is crazy. So they would only end up selecting the end, like an Asian woman or a white woman. And I would just over and over and over again, submit black women to the point where like, it was starting to look like I was bad at my job. Because like, right. as a editor, when you get a note, you're supposed to take that note, like, right, like I would have bosses that say things like I don't like purple. So I know not to bring them purple anything. And so if I'm getting the note, like not these pictures, not these pictures over and over again, but I just keep submitting them over and over again, they start to look at me like I'm obstinate. Like I like cannot hear what they're saying. And I was like, I hear it. I refuse to learn it though. And I was just getting so annoyed. And I'm sure that probably did come off in some unconscious way. Hi, I'm Kemi Sharia. And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter, where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers, and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. Hello, Fashion No Filterites. Welcome to our new format of Fashion No Filter, Pass the Mic, featuring the wonderful Henrietta Galina. Hi. Hello. So, guys, we mentioned what we were going to be doing in the next couple of episodes in the teaser that you hopefully have heard. Um, but we just want to get into it a little bit more because after this crucial moment of reckoning in the fashion industry, since the murder of George Floyd and so many others, we have really Kemi and I thought about how we can justly and rightly address these issues within our own industry and create anti-racism going forward. But it wasn't obvious to us how we'd managed to do this. And we have held Henrietta in such high regard and really admired her work. And we... <laughs> rang her and tentatively asked if she would consider coming on as a guest editor to help guide us for these episodes. 
And very luckily for us, she agreed. I mean, Kemi, or guys, do you want to talk a bit about the process and how this all came together? I think before we even get into that, I think it's important for us to also acknowledge um, that there has been a real lack of diversity on this podcast, certainly a lack of kind of engagement with the topic of racism. And Monica and I had a very heartfelt and honest conversation with each other about how um, we hadn't made enough effort to include the voices and viewpoints of black people um, and people of color. And that after everything we read and listened to, um, it became kind of clear that it was our white privilege as blonde, cisgender, able-bodied, heterosexual women that enabled us to ignore these issues and focus instead on other topics, topics that perhaps touch us more directly, like gender discrimination and climate change, things that maybe we were more comfortable with talking about, things that maybe were more were, were less uncomfortable to bring up. And I think we really realized that this had been a failure on our part and we really wanted to find a way to make amends and create, as Monica explained, a body of work that serves as an anti-racism guide. And when we did ring Henrietta up with these ideas, we did sort of brainstorm the many different ways in which this could look like. And we thought about interviewing different kinds of people and how that would look like. But after a while, we realized that this would just be kind of perpetuating the same format of us asking our questions within the lens of our white privilege and that actually in this situation it might be more powerful to pass the mic and listen to the stories of some of the women and colleagues that have been experiencing this kind of racism all around us all these years. Henrietta, does that make sense? Am I doing justice to what we are trying to make? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we started talking about this, we were definitely talking about it from a different vantage point. And I think one of the things that I was most mindful of in this time and this specific moment of reckoning is how can we be additive and how can we add value? And so I definitely really appreciated you guys' openness to different perspectives and different ideas and actually really actually quite literally passing the mic to your audience and behind the scenes. You guys were really open to, honestly, like a lot of, should I say uncomfortable conversations that we had around race and like how this should come together and what the challenges have been. And also why I didn't even think this was about me and why it was about really speaking to other voices in the industry about their experiences. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really sensitive topic in general. I think it's probably more so, I think maybe on this platform because this is a new level of participation, shall we say? So I'm personally really excited. I think it really gives a new perspective to listening and learning, which we've been hearing so much. And I think that it's something that I hope will be really valuable to everyone that's listening. Yeah, and I just want to underline something, just going back to what Kemi was saying. I think that for so long, and this is obviously not an excuse, but we've been worried about addressing these issues and getting it wrong. And that's why we've been so lucky to be able to learn with Henrietta. But our hope is that we, through this project, will be able to get through to people in a way that, you know, in more established industry setups, people aren't necessarily 
able to. So hopefully, hopefully our message gets across. Obviously, no one's ever going to be happy with everything that you do and say, and we accept that. But please accept our apology for our past failures and, you know, our effort to to make amends now. And I think it's really important to frame the series because the goal is to foster an ongoing environment of like dialogue and shared experiences and really an introduction to talking about race and fashion. And so that's really what this is. And I think you lending your platform for us to tell our stories and and to highlight these voices, I think is really, really important. But it is really just the beginning and it's the start of an ongoing dialogue because I know that from my perspective, a lot of my work is really about fostering those connections and that ongoing dialogue. But by no means is this a one fell swoop solution. Like, you know, it it really is an ongoing series. And I think what uh, myself and our guests are really helping you guys do specifically is introduce this topic and and foster future dialogue and future learnings. So I think this is only a good thing and the intentions have been really awesome. We've spent a long time talking about this and trying to figure out how we can make this work. And Henrietta, just for our guests who aren't familiar with your work, can you introduce yourself quickly? Oh yeah, that would be handy. So I'm Henrietta Galina. I am a creative director by way of brand marketing. So I work with brands uh, across different categories and I create marketing strategies, brand strategies, creative stories and images that speak to like how brands exist in the world. And most recently I have done a bit of writing. So penned a couple of op-eds more specifically about race and fashion. Uh, My podcast partner, Jason and I did a op-ed on the business of fashion, about fashion's contribution to the racist structures and culture. We are the co-founders of the Kelly Initiative with Keepway Chase Marshall. And I'm also the co-host of a podcast called The Conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galina, where we really just dissect themes in and around culture and fashion. And at that intersection is also, we talk a lot about the black experience within that. Thanks, Henrietta. And I think that's the perfect segue into what this particular episode is going to uh, cover. Um, This will be the first of three. And we have decided to focus on the true experience of being a Black influencer and content creator in this space. As we know, influencer marketing um, has largely been reserved and occupied by white people. So we wanted to speak to our guests today uh, about what it is to be a Black person within this system. Our next guest is writer and editor Danielle Prescott, who has been working in fashion since she was 18. That's over 14 years. Uh, She's worked as fashion editor at titles like Elle and Harper's Bazaar, and she is currently style director at BET. She's also in the middle of working on a book. And I personally am a massive fan of Danielle's IGTV videos, which started going viral when this movement took off after the murder of George Floyd, her manner of addressing, incredibly articulate manner of addressing the issues of racism in the fashion industry really took the Instagram world by storm. And I would recommend them to anybody who hasn't checked out Danielle Prescott's Instagram account yet. And our other guest is Tamu McPherson, who is one of the OGs. She's been operating in the industry for 10 years plus, um, starting off as a street style photographer, 
She then expanded to writing features for notable publications such as Harper's, Vogue, Elle, etc. before launching her blog, All the Pretty Birds, in 2008. Uh, she then went on to become editor-in-chief of Grazia.Italy um, and now Tamu splits her time between creating content and consulting for luxury brands while publishing her blog, All the Pretty Birds. Um, and I think it's worth noting that she has been very, very vocal about the race fallout recently. Uh, one of her pieces called uh, Luxury Brands Should Work with Black Content Creators has gone viral and has resonated with a lot of people. And we are very grateful to have Tamu on here today as well especially since for a very long time, she really has been one of the only ones. And I think that's a very important point that we're going to be talking about in the discussion today. Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. You know, fully transparently, it was different to what I was expecting. And I think that's a big part of this fallout. I think we're now hearing so many nuances to this point of racial discrimination, racial disparity and anti-Black practices. So yeah, I thought it was like, it was super interesting and I loved speaking to both of them. They're both so wonderful. So without further ado, this is Fashion No Filter and Pass the Mic on the topic of the experience of being a black influencer in fashion today. Well, hi guys, Tamu and Danielle. How are you both? Hi, hi I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you. Honestly, I think that it is overdue and I'm excited because I feel like we're going to have some real talk that just isn't very prevalent in the fashion space, even now with the racial fallout. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us. So I guess to kick off, we want to sort of set this up and frame our conversation. Would you both mind just introducing yourself so that we have a bit more understanding as to who you are and what you do and all of that greatness? Hi, um, I'm Danielle Prescott, and I am currently the style director at BET.com. I have been working in fashion since I was 18 when I got my first internship, um, and I'm a writer and editor and I actually am now a video producer, so Ooh. I do a lot of things. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Congratulations on your added <laughs> addition to the title. Um, and how about you, Tamu? Hi, everyone. This is Tamu McPherson. I am a digital creative. I got my start in digital shooting street style photography and worked my way into different areas of fashion, including editing, writing and consulting and i currently i publish all the site all the pretty birds that's perfect thank you so much what i'm really excited to talk about is i guess your kind of gaze and your vantage point as it pertains to being a black influencer you know with the racial fallout that's happened we're looking at all facets of the business of fashion and i think influencers are probably one of the most misunderstood components of it but also one of the most unspoken elements, I think, is how Black influencers play into that, because traditionally the influencer space has largely been a space that hasn't really been conducive to Black creators and Black influencers. And there have been so many challenges in terms of, you know, the successes and the upward mobility and even the, just the visibility. So I kind of wanted to kick off through that lens of being a Black influencer to really just ask, what is it to be a Black influencer in fashion? I think 
another component to add to this is you both have very different vantage points, which I think makes this conversation really interesting. You know, Tammy, you're an OG influencer. You, you were one of the originals. And Danielle, you've risen in the sort of social consciousness quite recently. So you both have very different timelines. But I'd be interested to see like what your experiences have been, how they converge and how they're different based on when you sort of got into the game. So basically, I, I began as a street style photographer because I wanted to work in fashion and I would have done anything to work in fashion. Um, I have a law and business background and I didn't have any connections. Um, and such I had such an unconventional fashion background. It was difficult when I started to look for a job in fashion. So very fortunately, I got my start working as a street style photographer and then I got the opportunity to write. Um, the important thing is after shooting street style for a while, I, I started my blog when all of our work was online on blogs. And, you know, it was a street style blog and I was talking about other people. At a certain point, um, my friends started to photograph me and that's when I became quote unquote influencer as brands started to tap me to interpret their collections and to promote their collections. I've been working since 2000. And six, so I've pretty much seen the evolution of the blog into um, the influencer space. And what's interesting is um, my initial vantage point was really to to give a spotlight to other people and not myself. And so um, when I transitioned into being a cool, I actually don't call myself an influencer, but that is my category of work. I'm very happy with just being a um, digital creative and. I think it reflects all of the different things I do professionally better than influencer. Currently, uh, the influence I have is through the use of my platform to speak out about um, racial injustice and other inclusivity um, issues. I think it's very important personally to do so when you have a platform that can reach people and individuals and that can inform educate and, and clarify um, issues. And I think that um, many of us who have chosen to use our platforms to do so are really serving a purpose. And that's how I like to, to treat my work. You, Danielle? For me, I don't consider myself an influencer at all, although I recognize that I am someone with a following. I am first a writer and an editor. I could actually like care less about social media, but I recognize it as a useful tool in terms of communication. And I have done that for as long as I've had social media in my career. Like it kind of became a place where you can kind of express your personality because I first started my career working in magazines. And a lot of the times in magazines, like when I was an assistant, I would be contributing things to pages, but someone else's name would be on the page. Or I didn't feel like I was able to kind of express myself the way that I wanted to. And, you know, when you have your own platform, essentially you can do that. So I first started with Twitter and then I, I made my way to Instagram. But now what I do, I actually work and hire a lot of influencers for work. So I don't really look at myself as one, but I am not going to lie. Like it's a very lucrative side hustle. Like it 
<laughs> I'm not going to like turn down opportunities when they come, but I have never been someone, I don't pursue that kind of like that aspect of this business. So when opportunities come to me, like I accept them or I don't like based on, you know, whatever bandwidth I have and I'm grateful for them. And I look at it as a legitimate career, but it's just not really an avenue that I feel like I want to take because there is such a toxicity involved in social media that I'm just like, I want to distance myself from as much as possible. And I think that's really interesting. You both raise very interesting distinctions, right? Because I think that largely there is this resistance to the term influencer. So most, a lot of people are, I'm not an influencer, I'm an entrepreneur or I'm a journalist or, and that's not at all to discredit or minimize what you're saying by any means. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of things in there. One, the influencer in general feels a little bit like a dirty word. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with a lot of the challenges, including the racial challenges that we're seeing in fashion. But also in terms of the way that I was thinking about it in this conversation, it influencer feels like a catch-all for people who have a significant presence and influence in the social media space. So I just didn't want you to feel like that was me negating the other things that you do. It's just more of a catch-all term because I think that as we talk about what it is to be an influencer, an influencer of, of colour, the anti-Black practices that go into the space, I think those distinctions will always be drawn in terms of people who are creatives and digital creators and photographers and writers and, and models and entrepreneurs and, and have a, an intersectionality, if you want to speak about it in a more professional sense, mm -hmm. to how they yield their influence. But I'm ultimately talking about people who hold influence in that industry that aren't traditional models and actresses and designers and such. Do, do you see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I don't want to come across as like condescending to influencers like whatsoever. I totally respect, <laughs> no. you know, no, people do across it. the board, across the board, yeah. I feel like it's a term that people tend to distance themselves from. And I think this is probably a good place to start as to why is that? Because the influencer space feels very specific, right? It feels very self-serving. There is a credibility challenge. There is a number of things that you could almost argue could potentially be underwritten by race because it looks a certain way. Okay, I had a meaningful conversation with Nate Hinton, the publicist. That I love led Nate. Yeah, well, he's the one that told me that I should use the title uh, digital talent. And what he specified was that in effect, when I'm hired, I'm working as a photographer, I'm working as a writer, sometimes I work as a stylist, and then sometimes I create capsule collections along with design teams. So he said it's, you're being hired as a talent. So it was just more specific to what I was doing. The other thing is, of course, I have so many friends who are influencers, so definitely respect um, the profession. But also I feel growing up in the community, the West Indian community that I grew up, it's for me also a matter of semantics in the terms of influencer to me, sometimes it sounds very pretentious. Like I don't take myself that seriously to say that I have this crazy influence uh, over people. What I do know is that since people are paying attention to me, I should use the opportunity to amplify important issues and the work of important um, educators, activists, 
in, in regards to Black Lives Matter and um, other pertinent issues. And, and, and that's how I look at it. But I completely respect my colleagues who are um, who call themselves influencers. Mine was a matter of a nice mentoring moment of someone, you know, pointing out to me that there was a better title for what I was doing. For sure. And I respect that. So I think in light of that, we can sort of shift the narrative to digital creators and people who, for the most part, work in the digital space in some way, shape or form. And so I think it would be a really great place to start within that space to talk about your experiences and like what kind of challenges and what has been your experience being in this digital social media space as a Black creator? And what sort of challenges and barriers have you come up against that you've clearly seen haven't been a challenge or a problem for your white counterparts? Okay, so what I will say is that I feel like I have a very unique perspective when it comes to things like this, because for most of my career, I have only ever worked for major media companies. And so that comes with a lot of weight. And so it's not, I'm, I'm never just Danielle Prescott. I'm like Danielle from Elle, Danielle from InStyle, Danielle from Modoc Brandy, mm. like Danielle from Beauty. People just associate with you so closely with whatever brand you work for. And so I'm never really like floating out there on an island by myself. So I get treated really well most of the time by brands. And so a lot of brands who have been exposed for treating creatives or black influencers poorly. I can't say that I've had a lot of those same experiences with them specifically because they're not going to mess with L. Like they might not care about like this specific black creator, but like if you have a, you know, significant media brand behind you, they're not going to disrespect you. You know what I mean? So I think it's, oh, 100%. It's, it's a little bit harder for people who are kind of on their own in this space rather than like in the last few years, I would say this weird like hybrid of like editor influencer has emerged and it's become a conflict for a lot of individuals in this industry. But for me, I would say the biggest change I think is having to talk to brands since I've been working at BET, which is the last four years about how I cannot cover something or I can or cannot go based on like their history with inclusion or representation. So there's a lot of people that will like send me invites to things and I'm like, I can't cover this, like, you know, or I can't attend this because this is totally irrelevant to the black community. And it's hard for people to understand that, like, because they have a relationship with me based on other places I've worked Like I just got a pitch yesterday and this girl was like, please don't kill me. This is not a, a black brand, but dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, what? Like you already know, because I have told you for the last four years, like this is not something that I am able to present to our audience. So that's interesting because you always present two conflicts there, right? Which is one is how you are seen based on your alignment or proximity to for all intents and purposes, white media or like white led media mm-hmm. structures, right? Mm-hmm. So it just even that idea, I think is really interesting because you've almost been covered by that. But then there's also this idea of how you are able, like really understanding in your shift to BET that there actually is a lack of almost content for you to cover based on 
the position of you and your position at BET and just BET as a as a media entity? Well, I wouldn't say there's a lack of content. There's definitely like plenty of stuff for us to do, but when certain brands ideate on like, you know, a rollout or a launch of something, I don't think that a lot of them are accounting for involving black media at all. So it really is geared towards white mainstream media. And then by default, that kind of eliminates black voices, inclusiveness, representation. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I meant. Sorry, because you get that lack of content. Do you see what I mean? You get that. Exactly. That's interesting. What do you think, Tammy? What's your experience has been? Because you're sort of on a different side of things. Absolutely. So I, I have always been um, very, very transparent. My, my situation is very different because my entire career took off in Italy. I worked in fashion briefly in the United States, but not in media. And I got my start here. And, you know, I didn't know anyone uh, here in Italy. I sent my resumes out. I actually drove them to every publishing house. Um, here and I, I heard nothing. And then at a chance meeting, at a bachelorette party, someone introduced. Somebody told me they would introduce me to an editor, and he started my career here in Italy. And let me tell you, he was extremely generous because he was able to assess um, what I could contribute to the organization upon meeting me. And so he was the one that suggested that I shoot street style. And then since at the time I was still traveling a lot to the United States, he decided I should do the trend research for his publication. And then he also introduced me to a fellow editor who taught me how to write for Vogue publications. So this was someone who I met who was very professional and who here in Italy, I don't know, I I don't think he was looking at the color of my skin. I think he was looking at what I could actually contribute to the publication. Now you can argue that maybe it's because of the introduction that took place, but I've come a very long way because of his generosity in the beginning. And the same goes, um, I've had just wonderful experiences. Like I've shot for, I shot street style photography for uh, lots of publications. Um, I shot for Refinery29 when they were starting out, you know, I, I photographed for Harper's Bazaar. And, you know, when I got my Harper's Bazaar position, Christina O'Neill was the uh, deputy, she was the executive editor at this time. And she stopped me in the street while I was shooting. And that's how our relationship started. And so in that moment, it was really important to get an exclusive street style position. And one of the reasons why she was like, you're, you know, you're a woman, you represent what Harper's Bazaar represents. And it was kind of like, I just had these great moments. And that work led me to creating the website for Grazia here in Italy, which at the time was incredible because I would say my contemporaries had definitely more experience than I did in terms of editorial But because of my international positioning, I was able to get that job and develop that project and edit it for a a short period of time. And that is how I made all of the connections with the communication directors and PR directors, because I had to sell the website with the sales, the ad sales team. And so when I finally went out to um, become an independent digital creator, I already had those contacts and then I was able to get the work that I did. So my experience is completely different here in Italy. And I've been very fortunate that people have uh, been so generous um, 
with uh, allowing me to work and giving me the opportunities that I have had. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I am very doubtful that I would have had the same opportunities I've had here in Europe um, in the United States. And I also wonder if you would have had it if it was to be a few years later as social media became really prevalent, because I think what you have really identified is a time in fashion when it really was quite different and it wasn't so much about social media and what performs and who's in and who, you know, it, it feels like it was a lot more organic and almost a lot smaller, like less globalized, particularly being in Milan. Yeah. And so I think that you sort of represent a kind of a different mindset that I think doesn't necessarily exist today. Because also to that point, you've been very, you know, you talk about being really fortunate to have had those really great experiences and had, you know, a lot of people really believe in you. But for a really long time, actually, you've been the only one in terms of just this, that social media presence, that public facing alignment with brands. And so how has that made you feel in terms of obviously being incredibly grateful and, and having a really fruitful career, but still only seeing yourself as being one of the few that have actually made that happen for yourself? I, it was frustrating to me because in a sense, you feel like, okay, um, I've gotten this position now. And you know, at a certain point, you'll begin to see more people who look like you in the space, but that never happened truly. What I did was I gravi gravitated towards Danielle from, from a, um, an influencer slash blogger slash digital creative creative perspective. I gravitated at that point towards Danielle, um, Shiona, uh, Tiffany, Nicole, because they were the only people I would see on the circuit. And so they became my reference for, um, you know, fellow black uh, media professionals. But in my space, in the digital creative space, uh, I remained the only one. And when I, I had always spoken about uh, racial injustice and uh, inclusivity and gender um, discrimination, I was very vocal. But in the moment that I realized that I could turn the conversation towards my actual profession, that's when I started to talk about, talk about it. But it did take me a minute to like realize that I should be talking about it in my workplace and not only for the general change in the world. And I think that's probably one of the things you both have in common that you've been incredibly vocal during this time. And I'm interested to know how has that conversation shifted, let's say before mm -hmm. the racial fallout, because I think there's a lot of talk, you know, we talk a lot amongst ourselves where it's like, we would literally have these moments where we would have open dialogue or we would try to have these conversations whether it's public facing whether it's internally with the people that we work with and it wasn't so well received but then there was obviously a shift that happened after the killing of George Floyd after the murder shall I say of George Floyd so I'm interested to see how that shift has impacted how you're seen and how you move through the space because you've always always been talking about this yeah I mean it's been a while especially I would say like I have been working at BUT Championing blackness has always been a mission of mine because I realized that it, there was such a lack of that specifically within fashion. And so the only thing I'll say that changed like after like the beginning of June is that suddenly there are more voices or there are more ears that are open listening, right? So it's like 
you said Tamu and I have always been talking about these injustices, like what happens to us as black women in this industry, the industry in general. And, you know, I have been very critical of it, but no one has been listening. Or I think that it has been a lot of like, oh, there's always something with that girl talking about that. She's never satisfied. She's never happy. Or she's always like bringing someone down. Cause I, I mentioned specifically that in May, the beginning of May for Mother's Day, the editorialist, which is a website that I really like, I think they have excellent taste. They produced a story for Mother's Day about all the quote unquote chic fashion mothers and they did not include a single black woman. And I found that to be so offensive, not only because there are so many very, very stylish black mothers out there, but because of the fact that black women are three times more as likely to die in childbirth than a white woman, no matter what your economic status is, no matter what your education level is. So like all life is a miracle, but when a black woman has a baby, that is like superwoman stuff in America. So I'm like, I found it so offensive that they did not include that. And so when I saw that story, I said something right away. And then I, out of the goodness of my heart, made my own roundup of cheap <laughs> black mothers. Right. And of course, no one really backed me. No one said anything. And I'm like, but do you understand how I am so frustrated when a month later, everyone's like, wow, racism is really bad. I'm like, yeah, but like less than 30 days ago, I gave you guys an example of how it's playing out right Right. before your eyes. And you guys said nothing. You've been doing the work. And that's also adds to the frustration where you're like, I even went and did the job for you and it still wasn't. Oh, yes, exactly. It's all here. (laughs) But that also has to do with who works in these companies, right? Because to the point of Tamu also being the only one for a number of years, I would almost go as far as to say a decade plus it is about these people who work in these companies and make these decisions as to how they're going to disseminate content what content they're going to disseminate and then you know as it pertains to digital creators who's going to make the content who's going to feature in the content so what has your relationships been like before the pandemic or before this racial fallout like how have you been able to cultivate those relationships or how have those relationships been challenging or challenged? Well, I think it's funny because for all Black editors or Black creatives, it's like we have to speak this dual language. So to say that like, because only white people work somewhere that they're not able to properly feature Black people is like psychotic to me. Cause I'm like, you wanna know about balayage, beach waves, <laughs> like tousled bedhead. I'm like, I could tell you. Could a white beauty editor tell me about cornrows, about goddess braids, about a wash and go? They could not, right? So I'm like, we're doing triple the work sometimes. And so they get to have this excuse like, oh, well, I didn't know. I'm like, no, these women are not only like, you know, especially specifically for the editorialist example, like these women are not only out here with like large followings in themselves, but they're your colleagues. Mm-hmm. They are sitting next to you at dinners, at events, at fashion shows, and you are not seeing them. That is like a systemic problem to me. Yes. Tommy's like, I have no more words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in my experience, and I'm, I'm happy that I get to 
share this with you guys, especially here in Italy, I was, you know, one of the strongest relationships I have with brands is with Gucci. And um, we can unpack everything that's happened with Gucci in the last four years. But um, I want to share that prior to the controversy, I had already been invited as a motivational speaker for the sales force. And th- I mean, that was the level that I was working, that I am working with Gucci on. So I was invited to, you know, inspire their sales force on how to, to sell, um, you know, Alessandro Michele's uh, collection after he started, you know, and a second thing that I had done for them because management had been uh, paying attention to the my communication and the uh, stories that I was posting on all the pretty birds in terms of racial injustice and gender inequality. They invited me to sit on a panel, uh, a diversity panel for the annual or the seasonal meeting, you know, when right before the show, they have everyone in and they have internal meetings. This is not something that is communicated. It's not a marketing um, initiative. And so I was invited with um, the head of Chime for Change and other people who are considered more activists than I was to speak about my experience as a Black woman. And I'm going to tell you guys something um, very honestly. Before that, I was speaking out because it feels very natural to speak out. And within my relationship with the brands, they know that I'm speaking out. I share the pieces that I write, you know, with them. But I feel that in that instance, the um, the executive that invited me to speak, I think he was helping me see my voice. And it was at that point that I realized that I could be doing more within uh, my space, my particular digital creative space. Now, and I want to be very, very clear here. We are all a part of the system. We all internalize racism. For me to have this experience where someone helped me because we had a relationship, understand how I could use my voice more efficiently is very important to me. And that is why I always speak about my experience with Gucci because it's then when I knew I had the power, because look, I'm a Jamaican. girl who's lived in the United States, who's lived in Italy. And I literally didn't know how, and of course I have access to all these, you know, not, I don't have access to all the executives in the, um, with the brands with whom I have good relationships, I have um, access to them. Understanding how you can communicate with them is sometimes something that needs to be pointed out to you. Like, I wish that I could be the person who is just gets it. But you guys know me and you know how soft-spoken I can be. You know how um, very, you know my how my style is. People actually, they don't know that about me. So it was in that moment. I had to have that moment. But when I reflect on it, I can clearly see that how you internalize racism. And sometimes you don't even know that you can be speaking on a certain level. And you can be so vocal and everyone can read what you're writing and you can share it on social media. But when you're in that room, how you present yourself, if you're on your own, if you're by yourself, could be something else until the moment where someone is looking at you and seeing you and inviting you to speak to 2,400 people about your experience. You know what I mean? So I think that's really important when our followers, people who listen to us, um, understand that 
we are all vulnerable, we all grow, we all come into our existence at different times. And to also reflect on that in their lives and in finding the safe spaces where they can be vocal and where they can amplify other voices and so forth. I mean, that's how it happened, you know, because you, you, myself and the girls, we always talked about these issues and we were always talking about them outwardly, but sometimes you need that. Absolutely. And I think that's really powerful. I really think in thinking and hearing the story, I think it's really powerful. And I've had similar experiences being a black executive myself, but I also understand that I'm in a position of privilege myself, which is also something that's been difficult to grapple with because mm -hmm. we've worked so hard to get here, right? The last, mm -hmm. what, 10, 15 years for all of us, we've really worked to be here. So it's not like it's unwarranted success. That said, we also see how so few of us get through the net. So I think while that's obviously really powerful and really valuable, what about all the other digital creatives that don't even get seen by these brands because of the way that the market or the landscape is so saturated with so many other people who don't look like them and then we know what performs and the algorithms play into it. But yeah, so how do you see that working? Because I feel like there is a whole wave of influencers or digital creators and a lot of them are, are not as fortunate to be in these spaces and to develop these relationships because there are so many other factors that go into being a digital creator today you're kind of battling an algorithm and a saturated market and like things that perform and you know there's a reason why a lot of influencers and digital creators and fashion photographers like they all look the same there is a there is a mm -hmm. thing that performs and that is a very real reality mm -hmm. for a lot of people so while we've kind of made it through there's a lot of people who don't have those opportunities so if you aren't able to be in the rooms to impact change what are the other avenues do you see it as like having to work around the establishment or is there tricks and tactics? Like I almost feel like we're always trying to contort ourselves to make moves. So yeah. how do you see that working for people that aren't as fortunate as us? I think Danielle being on the scene is a great inspiration. And I think that all of the, the influ influencers, the voices that have been using their platforms to speak now, I think they are, emboldening um, this generation of digital talents to feel secure in sharing their voice and in uh, demanding change. And I think that, I think what I've seen is also there've been different groups that have, that have created um, organizations or networks, networks where they have pulled together and they share information about their pitches, they share information about their contracts, they um, share advice on how to, to navigate the space and to navigate um, different aspects of business. So I think the grassroots kind of effort among the different like networks of digital creators is important. Um, you know, this pandemic and the social unrest that occurred during the pandemic, you know, it's, it's bittersweet because yes, this movement was started and yes, our voices are louder and stronger together. So I feel that, I, I hope that this momentum keeps up. I hope that um, everyone has been inspired by women like Danielle and other women and men who are using their platforms and sharing so many ideas on how 
they can come together, you know, to create support systems for each other. But I, I'm also very grateful that I was personally able to realize my voice and how I could use it strategically to advocate for fellow digital creatives. And that's why I wrote my open letter because, and which was an open letter that I was planning to write a year ago. But like we said before, you know, you have these plans, but you're like, who's going to listen to me? So I wanted to write something that was like Pulitzer prize winning because it needed to change the industry. And, you know, this, this social unrest happened and it was the moment to write it. And it probably got more attention than it would have a year ago. You know what I'm saying? And unfortunately, that's how things, you know, were and, and the reality of what's changed since May. And so that's interesting that you talk about the letter because you both actually have written or Tammy, you've written, Danielle, you have done a video that kind of went viral where you both have actually really spoken quite honestly about your thoughts on the industry. I'd love for you to both talk about, I mean, Tammy, you've gone into how that came about, but Danielle more so, like I would love for you to talk about that video because that video was pretty major and it was shared and shared and shared so many times. So many, it really landed with a lot of people. So I'd love to talk to you about what actually made that what was that breaking point that was like, okay, I've just got to tell it like it is on this video and the experiences that led to it and what happened afterwards? Well, it's really funny. I have been writing a book for like the past year about white supremacy, beauty standards, and like Temu said, the role that all of us play within racism, right? And how we're affected by these systems, how we internalize them and how our behavior shifts based on environments that we're in. And the way that I grew up was substantially centered around whiteness. So for a lot of my childhood friends, high school friends, et cetera, like I know that I am their only black friend. And I know this because I am invited to their weddings. I'm invited to their baby showers, like the most intimate like moments of their lives. I am also there. And now I am so much more conscious of it than ever that I am the only black person that they know that they're not paying that doesn't work for them. You know what I mean? Mm. And so, like you said, Henrietta, like we have been having these conversations amongst ourselves for so long. But the problem is that we don't have any help and we need assistance from white people if we're going to get anywhere. We need those editors at other places to realize when they're excluding Black women from conversations. We need, you know, we just need it to be something that is top of mind for people that are not black. And so that's why I made that video because I was like, I recognize the privilege that I have in closeness to white people. They, they listen to me, they're, they're my friends, they're following me, but I'm like, but you're not helping really. That was kind of the impetus for you know making that video. But I did not expect it to blow up the way that it did. It really was really refreshing it was super candid it was real talk you just called it like it is and I think that especially in this age where everything feels so branded like even now we're at a point where even the we're listening we're learning and it's not enough to be not racist you have to be proactively anti-racist all of those things are beginning to feel branded and like these corporate messages so Mm -hmm. I think people were really refreshed by that but 
I think what's interesting in this conversation, we're talking a lot about almost our privilege as kind of senior or, or somewhat successful Black professionals and creatives. But what are some of the challenges that you yourselves have actually faced? Because I think that one of the things we don't want to do in this conversation is kind of be like, play into that trope because I don't know about you but I often get in the workplace well you're here and you made it so really it's just a case of like if you could talk about your experiences like so many other people will come through and I'm like yeah but also no because there's always an exception to the rule and there's there's a lot to be said for hard work there's a lot to be said about circumstance and luck there's a lot to be said about serendipity so Mm -hmm. I can't say that my journey could be replicated just through telling my story per se right that said I do feel like I've also really experienced like I've also like caught hell on the way up it hasn't just been this idea of oh I just like worked really hard I outworked everyone and I did you know like I've definitely experienced things that I've internalized and I talk a lot about black trauma in the workspace because I think there is a price at times to pay for being the only one and for upward mobility and for being the only senior black person. I think those things actually really matter. So I would love to know for all of your successes, what have your experiences been with racism in that you can speak honestly about it? Well, for me, I think that I had a really awful working experience when I was at InStyle. I just felt so ignored every single day, so abused every single day. And it was like traumatic for me. And I remember that I was having a lot of friction with some of the other girls who were senior editors there. And like, one of them was like, Danielle always has a bad attitude, which as you guys will probably recognize is like, hey, (laughs) (laughs) you're like sometimes the truth is just the truth and shouldn't be lensed through these racial tropes I don't think there is a single black person in the industry that hasn't been told they have a bad attitude just by virtue of like speaking exactly (laughs) right and I'm like I and if you've ever worked with me like I like always say good morning to everybody I'm really like nice to everybody but like the thing that was also driving me crazy was that one of my jobs at InStyle was to edit like um affordable fashion pages and we would use street style images um as inspiration like as the jumping off point to say here's the trend and here's how to get it and every single month i would make sure to only submit images of black women and every single month they were rejected every single month they told me i need to find new images i need to find new images i need to find new images but they would never say that but i'm like this is crazy so they would only end up selecting the end, like an Asian woman or a white woman. And I would just over and over and over again, submit black women to the point where like, it was starting to look like I was bad at my job. Because like right. as an editor, when you get a note, you're supposed to take that note, like, right? Like I would have bosses that say things like, I don't like purple. So I know not to bring them purple anything. And so if I'm getting the note, like not these pictures, not these pictures over and over again, but I just keep submitting them over and over again, they start to look at me like I'm obstinate. Like, I, like, cannot hear what they're saying. And I was like, I hear it. I refuse to learn it, though. And I was just getting so annoyed. And I'm sure that probably did come off in some unconscious way. It's about not being able to exist in the range of your full emotions. So it's the Mm -hmm. idea that, like, if you're reacting to something, 
they're focusing on the reaction and less the thing that caused it. And so there is that thing to be reconciled, but also in terms of this idea of you being petulant or contrary, which is also something that we think about when we talk about race. I used to have the same thing when I would always do my castings, I would always try to cast a diverse range of women and that obviously included black women and it was always the feedback of like well that's not expensive enough or it's a bit too you know and so you're kind of using this coded language that you understand what it means Mm -hmm. but then if you react to it or point that out it becomes a problem about your attitude or about you even saying it so in terms of the responsibility of black creatives and black professionals in this space it becomes you know I think particularly in a pre sort of pandemic world it was very much like when we try to distill anti-black practices we ourselves then get faced with these huge challenges that we then internalize and that really factors into how we move through the space you know so it it becomes very conflicting and very complicated in a lot of ways that I think is one of the challenges that we really need to think about when we talk about dismantling racism because it isn't just a a visibility thing or an optics thing. I think there's a huge psychological component to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So after that, I just kind of was like, I can't do this anymore. So I, I took a break and then I made my way to BEP like from a freak accident kind of, but ever since I have made the shift to black media, like I'm able to have this kind of understanding with the people that I work with, like what our mission is and like what we're doing, the stories that we're telling. And it's, it's so much easier. Like not, you know, every company has its own issues, but like for me now, racism is not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, so, you know, it kind of makes a difference to my day to day, in my day to day. It it really does though. What about you, Tamu? Like I imagine you've also got a very different experience, different, but the same, obviously being in Europe and you work with a lot of luxury brands. So how have you been experiencing racism up until this point? Well, I haven't had any direct experience because remember, I worked in an organization between 2011 and 2013, and I was the boss of my group. So I created the atmosphere and it was a very positive atmosphere. And like uh, Danielle says, we had other problems, but it, it it wasn't, race didn't come up for me. I have observed it. I have observed it instead when I become a consultant and I see the briefs that come across um, that I review where they're directing you on the type of black person, black person to work with, or the the type that they're looking for, the type that's not too urban, um, that's not too this, that's not too that. And it's offensive. It's, it's extremely offensive, but you know, these individuals are so deeply seated in their bias, they don't even realize that they're looking at a black person and telling that black person not to pick another black person because that black person is too urban. And that is, you know, beyond um, absurd. So I've seen it there. Um, I've seen it just in in general, you know, here in different environments. Um, But I think that that's the difference. I've worked for myself more than I've worked for an organization where those systems could, you could feel them, you know, every day. Like I, in my experience, did not personally experience it. I did, however, see it in Italian media is very um, racist. So I did see it in the media when we were covering anything related to the media. And, um, you know, they, they still use blackface. 
um, they still use uh, derogatory terms um, to refer to people of color. And in those instances, you know, they've always been really cringeworthy, uncomfortable, and you've had to like walk people through why they're completely inappropriate. I, like I say, my experience here has been very particular. So I haven't, you know, experienced it here, you know, before coming here in a law firm. Yeah. <laughs> in a bank. Yeah. But um, this is this has been very different. That's actually really interesting as well, because I think that it feels very surprising, right? Because I think that there's something about European fashion and luxury fashion that feels very elitist and exclusive. So it's interesting to know that that's been your experience and actually quite comforting in some ways, because I think we're definitely in a time where things feel quite bleak as it pertains to fashion. So I find it quite comforting that you've not been faced with such. But that's personally, when, when you talk about um, the imagery of the brands or the, um, the errors that the brands have made because there aren't any people of color in decision-making um, roles in the brands, we can talk about that all day. But for me personally in the work environment, no, just because of the circumstances of my job when I worked for, for a publication here. Do you know what? We can talk about that, actually, because I'm really curious to know. And also because, Danielle, you raised that you're writing a book about racism and that all well, that includes racism and these Western ideals of beauty and how that impacts how we see ourselves, etc. For me, I wonder how this will be reconciled. I mean, I think the solution to or a big part of the solution to dismantling systemic racism in fashion is equity. So we need equity across all functions of fashion that includes leadership, board positions, venture capitals, heads of conglomerates and the like. And so I wonder until that happens, how that will shift because a large part of this is how we're seen. And I think when it comes to digital creators who work on trade based off of their image and images that they create, I wonder how much that has to do with it, if that makes sense, because ultimately it is about control. The power structures do control who sits on the front row and who's on the catwalk and who's, you know, in the ad. And I think that those things are very much controlled by their view of beauty, whereas it feels like this digital space feels a lot more democratic. And so do you think the reason why white influencers, white digital creatives, white photographers, et cetera, are able to be more successful because that is almost a facet that they can't control because they're like, okay, if we need a black person to helm this campaign, we'll hire a black actress or a black model. And you're, you're less inclined to hire a black digital creative, a black influencer, because there is that view of how they see us and that certain ideal of beauty versus just whiteness being the thing that's beautiful. So it inherently, almost all influencers and digital creatives just have a very different lens placed on them. Does that make sense? Like, I know that was quite Total convoluted, sense. but do you see what I mean? Total sense. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that, you know, it is a, a function of racism to say that they'll give the front row seat to a white quote unquote influencer, but then it would have to be a black talent of some caliber, right? So it's like all these white creatives are sitting next to rappers or singers <laughs> or, you know, the daughters of like someone super famous. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. Cause it's like, if you could control that ideal of beauty, i.e. the Western ideal of beauty, which obviously extends to blackness and also that idea of prestige, right? So it's like, 
who doesn't love and know who LeBron James is, right? That just mm-hmm. unequivocally, completely just makes a different realm. So it becomes less about a certain ideal of beauty and more an ideal of status or class, if you want to even go into that. But when it comes to, I think, just the general digital creative space, you do see that a lot of talents are given this kind of platform and they're given a lot of airtime and a lot of opportunity. So I was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of how those things played out, because you guys obviously have, you carry a lot of merit, but could often be interchanged with someone who just doesn't based on that perception, maybe of beauty at times. Do you feel like that is an experience that you guys have had? 100% and thank you for reminding me Um, in terms of work that is something that I could see. I remember there was a brand who um, in response to not having um, any black influencers on a press trip on a experience, uh, they then hired um, a number of talents exactly what you said and I remember thinking to myself, oh dear Lord, they've just skirted the issue and now you know they're inviting these talents and you know i love that i love the talents that they invited and i you know i also felt bad because those talents are amazing too and i'm happy that they were working but i was like they just skirted the entire issue i 100 percent think that there's a disconnect in how they tap into the clout of our entertainers and our celebrities and they um somehow there, a disconnect happens um, where they don't understand that if you have hired these mega talents who just, you know, are part of our zeitgeist, who are a part of our, you know, cultural fabric today, why wouldn't you hire people who look like them to interpret the product? It's something that they don't, they don't see. And it's definitely a part of the ingrained bias and the systemic racism. 100%. Totally, because then that just reinforces how others see us and perpetuates a lot more of the same. So then when you're a digital creative with a slightly different vantage point or you create a certain type of imagery or you look a certain type of way that isn't part of this model archetype or you're not a mega famous person, it seems like it's really easy to be left behind where it doesn't seem like that's the case without white counterparts. There seems to be an array and a spectrum of of identity and self Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be deemed acceptable on all levels. Meanwhile, the authenticity, let's talk about the authenticity. Like you would then pick white influencers who do not reflect the talent that you have, the LeBron James, for example, because we used his name before, who don't reflect him in any way. And you would have them interpret a product for a campaign that he's faced. So, you know, where's the authenticity there? I think that the range should be, you know, wider and more diverse because everyone can truly interpret that, but definitely the person of color, especially for an audience that they're sharing with Mr. James. And, And this is a disconnect that happens over and over and over again. And it really is a bias. Like, look, we're totally gonna tap into your cool factor because you know, you're know you the name on everybody in this country's, especially the US's lip and in Europe, but we're not gonna hire anyone um, that looks like you for the digital campaign. <laughs> exactly. 
I think that's really true. And I think it also goes some way into reinforcing the notion and the trope that we're a monolith when you keep seeing the same people and not really seeing the full breadth of who we are as a Black community. So I definitely think that those things are really valid. But this has been such an awesome conversation. I guess one of the notes that's probably left to leave on is what are the takeaways? Like if there was one thing that you would want Black digital creators coming up or the industry at large, the social media managers, the heads of marketing, the CEOs, like if there was anything that you wanted to be left as a takeaway, what would you want to impart on everyone? Hmm. I mean, I think like the point that you made about equity across all facets of the industry is so important. It needs to be such a comprehensive view of representation. And I think one of the issues with the fashion industry and the beauty industry in general is that we thrive off of exclusivity. Like we really do. Mm -hmm. I mean, even, even just like the way that I know a lot of seasoned people who have been in this industry for a long time, like act about their seats at fashion shows, right? Like we, (laughs) we feel like we have fought this hard and this long to get where we deserve to be. And we should have this position and whoever else doesn't have it too bad for them. Like there is like that element of it. But I also think that if you do have power, once you get it in this industry, you have to use it positively. And like, I mean, I know for me, one thing that I try to infuse is a lot of uh, representation in terms of the BET as hiring influencers that we cover body types, gender expression, sexuality, age. Like, you know, I'm like, I can't look at another 19 year old post of anything. Like, I'm like, right. why right. can't Tabitha Brown do something? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there, right. and like you said, there it has to be just like the breath of all of our experiences. Like, there are middle-aged Black people. There are Black people who wear wigs. There are Black people that wear their hair natural. Like, we need to see it all and we need to celebrate it all. And so, like, once you get to a point where you feel like you can start fighting for those people, you should. Like, not oh my people God, who, yeah. like, reflect just you, you know? Because I'm like, I am one. I have my own preferences and, like, how I want to look and how I, what, you know, what I like to look like. But that's not everybody. And to be a good content creator and to be like a good editor, you need to like make sure you're recognizing and validating all of those other kinds of experiences. Absolutely. Oh my God, I couldn't agree with you more. What about you, Tammy? What's your parting gift to us all? I think that we have to embrace accountability culture. And I think that we have to be, we have to be pragmatic and we have to be clear about how this process is going to take place. We're not making excuses for anyone. We're not um, going to uh, allow you to shift back into a um, pre-George Floyd um, social unjust Black Lives Matter movement. However, we all have to have a clear vision of how things occur. And when we say hard work, we mean hard work. And it's going to be the hardest work of your life. And you're going to mess up all the time. And we are here to kind of you know, keep you accountable and um, be prepared. Uh, this is to the brands and be prepared if you're not showing up to be called out time and time again, but it's constructive. It's, constructive. it's, it's to create this equity that we're talking about. And I feel like the three of us are just going to work and to try to keep this momentum going so that people in similar positions as ourselves will keep calling out 
you know, just keep these brands on their toes about this because like we were saying in, a, in another conversation, we all love fashion and we all want to be involved in the industry. Um, what we're asking for is equity. Great. I couldn't agree with you more. Honestly, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation and a much needed conversation. So I cannot thank you enough for joining and um, I'm sending so much love. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back. Kemi, Henrietta, and Monica back in the Zoom room to discuss the amazing conversation that we just heard. Reactions, Kem? I had I feel really strongly about so much that I heard there. Yeah, I mean, when Temu says we are all part of the system, so we all have internalized racism, that really, well, that really struck a chord. And I think she makes a very strong point. And also when she mentions about the importance of being in the room, you know, you can have these conversations, you can be penning all these ideas and, and posting to all your followers. But if you're not actually in the room with the decision makers, you're not really going to be contributing to making those changes. It's so it's so important that these these doors get open. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciated that, too. You know, what really stood out that really kind of jolted me as somebody who's been in the industry for almost as long as she has, you know, since I started interning when I was 19 or 20 is when Danielle was talking about sentences that you hear around editorial teams, like, let's just make sure it's not too urban or I just don't feel like that looks expensive enough. And I have heard in my role, even when I was like an editorial assistant, I've heard editors say stuff like that from the very beginning. And I suppose, I mean, this is a real mea culpa, but I didn't realize the extent to which that was racist talk. 
But I think that as a white person, you're kind of blind to that. You're like, oh, well, I suppose like, you know, less urban, maybe there are going to be less sneakers, but that's not what they're saying. And I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, uh, Henrietta, but it, it really stood out to me. Yeah, I think that sort of language, that's the purpose of it, right? It's supposed to be ambiguous and it's, it's coded language. The people that are using that rhetoric know what they're saying. And I think it's almost mm. a dog whistle where those who are attuned understand what is being said. So I could understand you saying, well, I really didn't realize that was, that was part of this racist problem. No, but I should have. I should have. I was naive. Not your intention, nor is it your experience. So I, I think you could be forgiven for not really understanding what that is, because to hear, oh, that doesn't look expensive enough, just sounds like that's what they're saying. But we really understand that. And it's also just really prevalent in our environment. So we, we're just really decoding that sort of language. But again, I think that's why equity and, and diversity and inclusion is so important, because I think that there is more of a, a learning and like a secondhand language, a secondhand nature of things when you really are surrounded by people who are facing these issues. If you're around someone who can speak out against that, or even if you're just around a colleague that's like, you know what she was really saying, right? So that also, I think, gives merit to why diverse workspaces are really important. It's interesting also because Danielle really highlighted the fact that when she was working for different publications she wasn't treated the same way and also purely because she's working for a certain publication she isn't seen as just Danielle she's Danielle from Elle or Danielle from sorry she was from Instyle not not Elle but uh, all those various places that she's worked I find that really interesting because I have often found that I get treated very differently depending on what room I'm in or who I'm with and we know that fashion is incredibly elitist and snobby and that I think all of us have quite traumatic experiences that one minute you're you're treated like you're someone that's important whose voice is relevant the next not at all the interesting thing is that I I think I have had to deal with that just from a you know just from a kind of like almost narcissistic point of view you know oh that's just how it makes me feel on that day I've never had to worry about my race coming in as a factor of any of those things I, I just always assume that that's just the nature of the industry and now I'm starting to realize that actually for many people around me it goes much much deeper and that's sad and it's something that I really want to make sure that we change and that we talk about because if I have this experience, imagine all these girls, the experience that they're, they're getting. Yeah, I think also the difference is that, you know, obviously fashion is, is highly listed. You're definitely viewed in terms of what you're aligned with, right? But I think the point here is that there is a baseline, you know, so if your baseline is somewhere up here, you know, like, okay, so Cammy's not with Chanel, but she's still Cammy, right? There's like a base level where it's like, if you're black, unfortunately, that base level is like, it, it is almost being cancelled, right? So it's like, okay, Camille, Camille's not here, so we'll put her in a second row. The difference, I think, when you're black is, okay, you just will be excluded. It's that realisation of that you, you just immediately are two, two or three steps ahead without even having done anything. And that's what really hit home with what Danielle was explaining and that I found just really devastating to hear. Although it's very, I mean, having heard it, 
it then suddenly becomes very obvious. So I feel very stupid for not having thought about it before as well. So it's just all these mixed emotions of just, yeah, having been blind to a lot of things around me, which I think. Um, but that's a lot of these cases. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. But and, and I really think what you just said, Henrietta, is interesting about if we were in more diverse workplaces in the first place, there would be people around to say, oh, here, white girl, is what you haven't actually understood about the deeper implications of what's going on here. Not that we shouldn't be able to be awake to this stuff ourselves. Obviously, that should be expected of everybody. But I, I, I do completely agree with you, Henrietta, and I know you've been so vocal about this in a number of ways that like, from the top down, these, these workplaces have to become more diverse. And it's going to be, it's going to be a real battle in this industry, but I really hope that it um, happens. What do you think are the steps that we can be taking just as people with, with, with a bit of a voice to, to, to continue to put this kind of pressure on? Yeah, I think in terms of what could be done, I think it's, I mean, there's a number of things, there's structural change, there's systematic change, there's different tactics that could be deployed, but I think it all starts on a psychological level because I think if you're aware of what is causing trauma and what is causing racism, I think we could go some way into like fixing it. I think part of the challenge here is the resistance or the lack of acknowledgement that there's even a huge systemic systemic problem beyond just knowing that because that's the rhetoric that's been going around, really understanding what is my contribution And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're overtly racist. You could be deploying microaggressions. You could be complicit, right? The amount of times that I've heard stories or I've been in situations where it's like, this is a crazy situation and not a single person is speaking up, you know, because it doesn't always sound the same or it's not always as well received if everything, if all of the criticism, if all of the... If, if the black person is always raising the issue of racism, it becomes like a, oh, there she goes. Oh, she's always making it a race issue. There she goes pulling the black card. And sometimes it really is incumbent on our white counterparts to speak up for us because it's sometimes held in different esteem, particularly when you're talking to, about people who are inherently racist. You know, they tend to value the voices and opinions of other white people. So I think those things are really um, important. But also like, unlearning is also really important right and i think we've seen that in the women's movement in the me too movement like there are certain things that just don't happen because men don't want to be called out because there's a a new paradigm shift right as it pertains to women like people are like what about women women ceos women venture-backed businesses like there's a whole focus around women and their role in hollywood or their role in the workspace so we've we've seen sort of blueprints on how inclusion or treating different groups differently can work so I always find it also really interesting that there's this rhetoric of like what can we do when it comes to race because it's this thing where all of a sudden we don't understand how just extending equity can apply to a different group of people Mm. I think that's completely right and also I think after all these conversations it would be criminal to pretend that we're not aware anymore it's one thing not having realized in the first place, which is bad enough, but now that we are all more than aware, it would be really, really wrong to not speak up when you see these situations of injustice. And I, for one, 
really hope that in all future work that I'm engaging in with brands, but also, you know, invitations and events and all the different sides to this industry that I can remember to be vocal and to use my voice, my white privilege to support and amplify the stories of those around me who don't have the same experience as I do. And I think that is what has really hit home listening to Temu and Danielle, because I do see that we are, they are starting off with a disadvantage. And that is something that I want to make sure can change. Well, something else, and it's small, but you know, I was thinking back to Danielle's story about being at InStyle and suggesting week on week on week, maybe yeah, a person of color, a black girl um, as the street style inspo and the editor being like, mm, no, 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 no. Different girl. We need a different girl. Where was the rest of the editorial team noticing that she was putting this forward and it getting rejected every single time? No, mm. we need to have our eyes peeled because... I now am loath to, to imagine that perhaps I've been on editorial teams where similar things were happening and, you know, not challenging that. Um, so I think that was a really apt example of the kind of thing that everybody can be looking out for. And I think that's exactly it. And that's part of what I was talking about. And one of the sayings that I love the most is that it's, we're no longer asking you to be allies, we're asking you to be co-conspirators. And so in the example that Daniel raises, what would have been awesome to have seen is if there were a number of white editors also suggesting other people. And also highlighting in all workplaces that there's a difference between calling out injustices and having an attitude problem. That really struck me as well. Yeah, I think things are really perceived so differently, I think, and that's part of the racial bias that we need to unlearn, right? So that's, that's the whole thing. If I say something that doesn't, inspire wonderful feelings and it's not necessarily me being difficult that might we might just be having a difficult conversation and I find that a lot of people in fashion are able to make that distinction when it comes to speaking to other white people but I think when it comes to speaking to black people or people of color that distinction just gets completely lost and I think that's also part of the frustration. It would. And it's so interesting because I think the industry is dominated by women. And as women, most of us have this experience anyway, just in a gender space, because obviously you often get accused as a woman of having an attitude problem or being unmanageable or emotional, hysterical. And I think we've all had that experience. So if we can see that, how can we not see all right, the rest? But those are often the very things that get imparted on a lot of people of color or black people. So even the irony that those are things that we transfer onto other people is, is really ironic. But I think to your point about how else can, I guess, digital creators specifically support, there is that idea of due diligence and how do you do your due diligence to make sure that there are more people at the table. And one of the challenges I foresee personally is it does involve giving something up. So for instance, if there are, and I don't know why I keep using Chanel because I guess it's to a lot of people the pinnacle, but if there are 10 influencer seats at Chanel and you both ask who else is coming to the show, that it's 10 white influencers and you say, I think that you need to increase this by at least 50% and here are five really great influencers of color. That means that you are prepared to give something up because those could be your seats that get replaced with those people of color. And I think that's potentially the barrier where when we talk about equity and when we talk about bringing more people into the conversation, 
it sometimes does mean giving something up, which I think could cause a bit of a resistance, particularly in this influence landscape where it really is like every man for themselves, largely because of the way that the landscape is set up and it's a bit like the wild, wild west and you know, get your money where you can and all of that sort of thing. But I see that being a huge barrier. Like, are people really willing to give up real estate so that other people can join the party? I think that remains to be seen. On that note, thank you so much for tuning in today. I think that's a very important point to kind of sit with and really, yeah, let sink in because I think you are right. Um, That is the only way that things will change. Henrietta, thank you so much for being our guest editor today. It's been a real eye-opener and a, and a pleasure, of course. Thank you to everybody that has tuned in to this special episode. There will be two more in this series. In the meanwhile, you can still write to us if you have any comments or feedback at our email addresses, fashionofilter at gmail.com. You could also DM us. We are always on our Instagram accounts. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.